Shalom, everyone. Father Yahweh, creator of the universe, Father, I ask that you be with me today, Father, allow the lessons from your word to be taught to your people, that we can learn them and apply them to our lives. And uh, we just thank you and praise you, and we thank you for your son, Yahshua, the word. Hallelujah. You may all be seated. <clears throat> Sorry, I've got a slight sore throat, so um, it's going to sound a little funny, a little raspy today. But I will say, uh, preparing for this sermon, the kings of Israel and Judah, the good, the bad, and the crazy, I did, um, I will say, it, it makes you a little melancholy. There's not a whole lot of good going on with the kings of Israel and the kingdom of Israel. And it's sad in so many ways. We're going to go through some of that. Um, <clears throat> to learn the lesson of the kings of Israel and Judah is to learn about the struggle Yahweh has with mankind. It's true that mankind cannot govern himself for very long without rampant corruption and injustices. Different forms of government have emerged throughout the centuries to try and overcome human self-destruction. Hang on just a second, I'll get my timer going here. Um, Even today, in our own political system, um, there's rampant corruption. And it starts at the ballot box, weaponizing government agencies um, to go after political rivals. The list goes on. Why is it that so many politicians arrive in Washington with maybe a net worth of $100,000, $200,000 in a few years? They're worth millions. This is corruption. And this is no different than it happened for thousands of years in governing man. Man cannot govern ourselves judiciously because we are flawed and biased. Our good intentions eventually give way to self-servitude. Certainly, we can govern for a little while. In the end, it always ends the same way. Civilizations come and they go A reset always happens. The best of empires have been built on biblical standards, still collapse because of man. Because in a nutshell, we are our own worst enemy. To understand this, though, is to understand the monarchy in ancient Israel. The issue of self-governance in scripture is a culmination of everything we see in the scriptures. Obedience versus disobedience, sin versus righteousness. To self-govern, we need the word of Yahweh. But what is rejected in churches and governments today? Let me give you a hint. It's a five-letter word. It begins with T, and it ends with aura. By rejecting the Torah, you reject Yahshua himself, who is the very living word and that word, when he existed, when he walked this earth as a human in human form, was the Torah. That's what he is. He embodies it. I'm sure you've heard the saying, absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Very popular saying. <clears throat> this was penned by the writer and historian and ridiculously long-named politician, John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Action, who said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are always bad men, he says. John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Action seemed to borrow this thought 
from another man with a ridiculously long name, French poet Alphonse-Marie Louis Pré de la Martine, who said, absolute power corrupts the best natures. I think that's, I think that makes a little more sense to me. You can have the best of intentions, but your own pride and greed many times supersedes those intentions. There's uh, that French poet. So before we go into the kings of Israel, we need to understand the kingdoms of Israel. They can be categorized into two different kingdoms, the united kingdom and the divided kingdom. This division happened right after Solomon with Jeroboam forming his own government to the north in opposition to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and in opposition to the temple and worship of Yahweh from Jerusalem. Rehoboam has the unflattering distinction of being the last king of the United Kingdom and the first king of Judah. The people wanted a king that could fight their battles in Israel. And the result was turmoil. What did Yahweh say about Israel having a mortal king? If you turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8, I'd like to read this entire chapter. And it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba, and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. It's interesting how even the prophets have these same issues. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations." But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto Yahweh. And Yahweh said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other mighty ones, so do they also unto me. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of Yahweh unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself and for his chariots and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them in ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep and he will, and you shall be his servants. He, uh, and you shall cry out in that day because of your king, which you have chosen you. And Yahweh will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and said, Nah, 
but we will have a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That's a slap in Yahweh's face. And Samuel heard all the words of the people, and he rehearsed them in the ears of Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go you, every man, unto his city. At this point, they have sealed their own fate. Because Yahweh fights our battles, not man. So... They have rejected me as their king, Yahweh had said. So here is um, the United Kingdom. This was one of the best times in Israel's history, at least as it relates to the monarchy. This time period was short, however. All of Israel's tribes were united under one king. This united king only lasted for three kings, Saul, David, and then Solomon, sadly. Then we ended up with the divided kingdom. After Solomon and the mess that ensued, and we're going to read some of that, the kingdom was divided. The northern tribes broke away and initiated their own kingdom in in the northern part of Israel. The first capital was Terzah, until the time of King Omri, about 884 BCE, who built the city of Samaria and made it his capital. After this, the region simply became known as Samaria, This lasted for 206 years until the north was conquered by Assyria and taken captive. They are essentially gone at this point. A few scattered people are still left in the area, and the Samaritans claim that they are descended from some of those people um, that, that were not taken away to Assyria. That was the punishment, however, for the northern tribes because they got into idolatry and evil. It's been said that Evil, or I should say live, is evil spelled backwards. The monarchy in Israel starts in 1 Samuel 9.1 with King Saul. There was a Benjaminite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becharath, the son of Ephah, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. In Hebrew it says, Gabua Michal Ha'em, higher than any of the people from his shoulders upward. He was literally a head taller than other men. So he stood out. So I'm sitting at my cubicle writing this sermon, right? And I, I uh, curiously decided to play the scientist and do a little experiment of my own. I got a tape measure, and I happen to look to the left, and there's Lucas. So I decided I'm going to measure Lucas's from his head from his shoulder to the top of his head, and that measured around 12 inches from his shoulder to the top of his head. So I realized it's known from skeletal analysis from the Israelites of that time period, they stood around 5 foot 5 inches. So Lucas, no doubt, has a bigger head than the average Israelite, right? <laughs> he stands at 6 foot 2, so obviously I have a problem here. So this is where it really gets analytical. I decided, because it just sounded good, to deduct two inches, right? Why not? Just deduct two inches from the 12-inch measurement. I suppose many of you are wondering why I didn't just find a 5'5 person and measure their head. That's an excellent question, by the way. 
Nevertheless, I um, added 10 inches to 5 foot 5. And after some basic arithmetic, I came up with 6 foot 3. Now, if we compute the difference of the average heights that we would be the equivalent of now to then, we get about 6 foot 7. I know Brother Michael is going to have some serious critiques of my scientific analysis here, but I will say I stand by it 100%. 1 Samuel 10, 17, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to Yahweh at Mitzpah and said to them, this is what Yahweh Elohim Israel says, I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your Elohim who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities and you have said, no appointed king over us. So now present yourselves before Yahweh by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had um, all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of Yahweh, has the man come here yet? And Yahweh said, yes, he has hidden himself among the supplies. So it seems at this point, Saul maybe had more of a humble attitude. They ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Six foot seven, right? Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man Yahweh has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, long live the king. So Saul is king, and we all know the story. He disobeys Yahweh. It seems at every turn, he didn't destroy the Amalekites like Yahweh told him and kill King Agag. And um, that was, I think, one of the main first sins. He decided to play priest and king and offer sacrifices when the prophet Samuel did not show up before the battle. We know that was another major offense. But that pales into comparison to some of the disobedience Saul eventually gets into. We know eventually Yahweh strips the kingdom from Saul, gives it to David. And the people like David. They say Saul's killed his thousands, but David, he's killed tens of thousands. And obviously, Saul did not like this. His pride gets the better of him. And he goes out in bitter hatred to kill David. In 1 Samuel 22.6, we see the unthinkable happen as he is searching for David near Jerusalem at the priestly city of Nob. It says there in verse 6, Now Saul heard that David and his men had been discovered, and Saul was seated, spear in hand, under the tamarisk tree of the hill at Gibeah. With all his officials standing at his side, he said to them, Listen, men of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give all of you fields and vineyards? Will he make all of you commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? Is that why you all conspire against me? No one tells me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is concerned about me or tells me that my son has incited my servant to lie and wait for me as he does today. But Doag the Edomite, who was standing with Saul's officials, said, I saw the son of Jesse come to Amalek, son of Atub at Nob. Amalek inquired of Yahweh for him. He also gave him provisions and the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent for the priest Amalek, son of Atub, and all the men of his family who were the priests of Nob. 
And they all came to the king. Saul said, listen now, son of Atub. Yes, my master, he answered. Saul said to him, why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, giving him bread and a sword and inquiring of Elohim for him, that he has rebelled against me and lies in wait for me as he does today. Amalek answered the king, who of all your servants is as loyal as David, the king's son-in-law, captain of your bodyguard, highly respected in your household? Was that day the first time I inquired of Elohim for him? Of course not. Let not the king accuse your servant or any of his father's family, for your servant knows nothing at all about the whole affair. But the king said, you will surely die, Amalek, you and your whole family. Then the king ordered the guards at his side, turn and kill the priests of Yahweh, because they too have sided with David. They knew he was fleeing, yet they did not tell me. He's turned into a tyrant at this point. But the king's officials were unwilling to raise a hand to strike the priests of Yahweh. The king then ordered Doeg, you turn and strike down the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck them down. That day he killed 85 men who wore the linen ephod. He also put to the sword Nob, the town of the priest, its women its, and its children and infants and cattle, donkeys, and sheep. The one time, it seemed, Saul decided to destroy everything. But one son, Emelech, son of Atib, named Abathar, escaped and fled to join David. He told David that Saul had killed the priests of Yahweh. Then David said to Abathar that day, when Doeg the Edomite was there, I knew he would be sure to tell Saul. I am responsible for the death of your whole family, David said. Stay with me. Don't be afraid. The man who wants to kill you is trying to kill me too. You will be safe with me. The depravity of King Saul and rejection of Yahweh was so great, he murders Yahweh's very priests. It's hard for me to fathom that. But believe it or not, he descends even farther into depravity. In 1 Samuel 28, 3, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in his own town of Ramah. Saul had expelled the mediums and, spirit, and spiritisms from the land. The Philistines assembled and came and set up camp at Shanuam. While Saul gathered all Israel and set up camp at Gilboa, when Saul saw the Philistine army, he was afraid. Terror filled his heart. He inquired of Yahweh, but Yahweh did not answer him by dreams or Urim or prophets. Saul then said to his attendants, find me a woman who is a medium so I may go and inquire of her. There is one at Endor, they said. So Saul disguised himself, putting on other clothes, and at night he and two men went to the woman. Consult the spirit for me, he said, and bring up for me the one I name. But the woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done. He has cut off the mediums and spirits, spiritists from the land. Why have you set a trap for my life to bring about my death? Saul swore to her, I find this crazy, he swears to her by the name of Yahweh. As surely as Yahweh lives, you will not be punished for this. Then the woman asked, whom shall I bring up for you? Bring up Samuel, he said. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out at the top of her voice and said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? The woman said, I see a ghostly figure coming up out of the earth. What does he look like? He asked. An old man wearing a robe is coming up, she said. Then Saul knew it was Samuel, and he bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? I am in great distress, Saul said. The Philistines are fighting against me, and Elohim has departed from me. He no longer answers me, 
either by prophets or by dreams. So I have called on you to tell me what to do. Isn't that crazy? I mean, if you just think about this, I mean, he's a, a, a man that's lost. And obviously Samuel has guided him all his life. And at this point, he will literally go try to conjure up a spirit of Samuel because he just, everything has escaped him. The, the communication to Yahweh, everything is gone. I mean, look what he's done to this point. Samuel said, why do you consult me now that Yahweh has departed from you and become your enemy? Yahweh has done what he predicted through me. Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to one of your neighbors, to David, because you did not obey Yahweh or carry out his fierce wrath against the Amalekites. Yahweh has done this to you today. Yahweh will deliver both Israel and you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Yahweh will also give the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Immediately Saul fell full length on the ground, filled with fear because of Samuel's words. His strength was gone, for he had not eaten all that day and all that night. I find that interesting that a man can be so conflicted and delusional that he's obviously fasting for an answer and and then goes to a medium. We know the prophecy held true. Saul was struck down along with his sons uh, the next day on the battlefield against the Philistines. There was debate if this was actually Samuel or a familiar spirit. Um, However, the spirit makes a frightening observation regardless. We never want to hear Yahweh has departed for you and become your enemy. The story of Saul could be one of the more tragic stories in the Old Testament, and we can learn from Saul. You can keep yourself in check biblically. It's easy to build on our sins and push the bar farther and farther until we find ourselves alone in our sin and our disobedience. Obey the word of Yahweh and do not do it our way. Those are the lessons I get from Saul. So Saul is dead. <coughs> Excuse me. So Saul is dead and, he, and uh, David is now king. And scripture characterizes David as a man after Yahweh's own heart. And we know the story. I don't want to go over the whole life of David because there's a lot we got to cover here. But of interest of time, David committed two major sins. The first was adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. While her husband was away at war, he committed adultery. And after Bathsheba became pregnant, David tried to hide his sins and hope that Uriah would sleep with Bathsheba. Uriah refused when he came, when David had called him. Because his troops, according to Uriah, were still in battle and were suffering. And the last thing he wanted to do was be in a nice house and be with his wife. So he realizes at this point that this is going nowhere. Uh, So David sends Uriah with a sealed letter with his own death warrant. Telling Joab, the military leader, to put Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle. And what, what compounded this was David's own lies afterwards. And we know what had happened later with Nathan the prophet, where he said, you are the man. But in the end, David repented. He did pay for his sin. Death entered his household, and as a result, his household was a mess. Because we know that the wages of sin was death. 1 Kings 15.5 says, For David had done what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and had not failed to keep any of Yahweh's commands all the days of his life, except 
in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So afterwards, David, as Mike Bannock would say, seems to be squeaky clean. The transition of power from David to Solomon was anything but smooth, however. His fourth son, Adoniah, staged a coup along with David's trusted general, Joab, who was also, I believe, his nephew. Adoniah declared himself king. Scripture says David was old and stricken in years at this point. Adoniah invited his brothers and princes along with court officials to a solemn sacrifice where he was going to announce his claim to the throne. Of course, Solomon was not invited to this. Assuming that Adoniah will soon move to eliminate his rivals in opposition, Nathan warns Bathsheba. Solomon's mother and counsels her to remind the king of a previous promise to make Solomon the successor. David, even in his old age, moves quickly, and Solomon was anointed at the Gihon in Jerusalem and declared king. This action diffused the situation and put Solomon in control. Adoniah was later put to death as a result of his nefarious actions after David had died. This crazy spectacle was how the transition of power between David and Solomon happened. The kings of Israel, as far at this point, has been just a disaster. We're only on the third king. Third king of Israel, David's son Solomon, was known as the wisest of all men. And that's a conundrum, I will say. And you'll see here in a minute. He could have asked for anything in his life. We should turn to, yeah, we could have asked for anything in his life. But he asked Yahweh for wisdom to govern the kingdom. The beginning of his kingship started good. His heart was right. He was, he was concerned about the people and to do what was right and to have wise judge, judgments. In 1 Kings 4.32, he tells us, uh, Kings tells us, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. 1 Kings 3.1 says, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of Yahweh and the wall around Jerusalem. Already, right off the bat, he marries a a pagan princess. 1 Kings 6-7 says, In building the temple, only blocks dressed at the quarry were used, and no hammer, chisel, or any iron tool was heard at the temple site while it was being built. A silent prefab structure. Imagine the thought and planning and design that had to go into such a structure. I'm sure Solomon's wisdom played a role here. Verse 11, the word of Yahweh came to Solomon. As for this temple you are building, if you follow my decrees, observe my laws, keep all my commands and obey them, I will fulfill through you the promise I gave to David your father. And I will live among the Israelites and will not abandon my people Israel. Unfortunately, though, Solomon did not follow Yahweh's decrees. Solomon's sins are great, but they're not just any sin. They are detestable sins. According to 1 Kings 11, Solomon's wives turned his heart after other gods, it says. Solomon literally builds high places to some of the most disgusting pagan gods worshipped by man. Remember, we're three kings in here, and he's already building temples to pagan gods in Jerusalem. Let's start reading in 1 Kings 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, 
and Hittites, and they were from nations about which Yahweh had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other mighty ones, and his heart was not fully devoted to Yahweh his Elohim, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. He did not follow Yahweh completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemesh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Here is how egregious the sin of Solomon was. The god Chemosh was a Moabite god that Solomon introduced to Israelite culture. The cult of Chemosh was prevalent in Israel until King Josiah later destroys it. The name Kamosh is believed to mean destroyer or subduer. He was a fish god, and according to the Moabite stone, the Meshastele, Kamosh was associated with the sex goddess Ashtoreth. It is this pagan worship of Ashtoreth, the Ashtoreth tree, that the Christmas tree has been linked to. Here we see a relief in the British Museum from the palace of King Asher Nasir Paul II, showing the worship of the Asherah tree, a perversion of what we see in Genesis, what they believe to be the tree of life. The relief was behind the royal throne in Assyria. This is where they found it. Jeremiah 10, 3-5 speaks of this. They cut a tree out of the forest, and a craftsman shapes it with a chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. Their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Deuteronomy 16.21 is specific. Do not set up any wooden Asherah pole besides the altar you build to Yahweh your Elohim. <clears throat> and do not erect a sacred stone for these Yahweh your Elohim hates. I should note there's no word for pole in the Hebrew text. Asherah, or sometimes Asherim, in the plural is what you see. In Hebrew, it says here in Deuteronomy 16.21, Asherah call etz etzel mitzbeach Yahweh, as a wooden image and tree near the altar of Yahweh. The word Asherah in scripture is linked to the term groves or Asherim in Hebrew. The modern idea of tree worship and Asherah is very ancient and a pagan perversion of the Garden of Eden and the tree of knowledge that you see in Genesis possibly embodying even Eve herself as Asherah. But the worst and most disgusting pagan god of them all is Moloch, the demon deity of child sacrifice. It's hard to believe, but Solomon built a high place for it. To grasp how sick the worship of the god Moloch was is to understand how far Solomon had descended into paganism and rejection of Yahweh as a result of his wives. I was hoping you were going to do that. Water boy, right? <clears throat> Water man. Don't get mad at me, John. 
The idol of Moloch was essentially a bullheaded, fiery furnace idol with hands outstretched like this. Many times in scripture we see the prohibition of, quote, passing their children through the fire. This is speaking literally about sacrificing their children to the god Moloch. The Midrash, which is an ancient Jewish commentary on the text, gives us this disturbing explanation of how the Israelites would sacrifice their children to this disgusting god. How did the Moloch work in the valley of Ben-Hinnom? It was built outside of Jerusalem. It was an idol with the face of a calf and open hands like someone who wants to take something from another. They would light this idol on fire until his hands were scorching. There were seven chambers before him, and according to the quality of the sacrifice, that is how close one could come to him. If one came with a bird, then chamber one, goat, chamber two, sheep, chamber three, calf, chamber four, cow, chamber five, and ox, chamber six. He who brought his child, the priest would say, that he is offering the greatest sacrifice. He would enter the innermost chamber and go kiss the moloch. The priest would then take the child and place it near the moloch. They would then bang with drums to drown out the cries. It, would say, it was said the priest would bang and clap to drown the noise from the child's screams so the father would not regret his decision. Leviticus 20 gives a stern warning about this sick worship. In verse 1 it says, Yahweh said to Moses, say to the Israelites. You've got to think, this is in Leviticus. Yahweh's giving this to, to Moses. It says, um, any Israelite or foreigner reading, residing in Israel who sacrifices any of his children to Moloch is to be put to death. The members of the community are to stone him. I myself will set my face against him, and I will cut him off from his people. For by sacrificing his children to Moloch, he has defiled my sanctuary and profaned my holy name. If the members of the community close their eyes when that man sacrifices one of his children to Moloch, and if they fail to put him to death, I myself will set my face against him and his family and will cut them off from their people together with all who follow him in protesting themselves to Moloch. Now we think that's terrible, but today we sacrifice our children to Moloch by way of abortion. We kill the most innocent among us. The slaughter of the innocents. First Kings 11.9, Yahweh became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, and had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep Yahweh's command. It was more than just his wives. So Yahweh said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude, you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but I will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. And of course, this is prophesying the split of the kingdoms here. This is the Hinnom Valley. When I was in Jerusalem, we walked through here. Um, we actually did a, a television program in this area. It's beautiful. And you walk through it and you think, somewhere here, Molech, the, the, the idol was burning children. Um, this is known as hell as well because there was, it was like a garbage dump. There was a perpetual fire going on. And that's where we get this concept of ever-burning hellfire today. But this is the area uh, in Jerusalem, right, right near Jerusalem. What Solomon started in the Hinnom Valley, other kings continued. And this is why sin spreads 
It's the very reason Yahweh says, destroy every trace of, pagan, of the pagan nations. Just a little bit compounds itself and spreads. It's kind of like the, um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? Thirteen kings later, we see King Ahaz, and he's still worshiping Moloch. Second Chronicles 28, it says, Ahaz followed the ways of the kings of Israel, burning sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, and sacrificed his children in the fire. We see the precedent that one king can set for his offspring and the people here. Solomon could be considered the wisest and may possibly the foolish king of Israel. He had it all and in the end perverted Israel and set that precedent, that sick precedent to other kings. The end of the kingship of Judah was a sad testament of the people. A brutal, sad end to Israel and the promise that Yahweh had given them if they could just stay true to him. It's really not complicated. I mean, it really isn't. Just obey him. That's all, he, that's all he's ever asked for. Exodus 20, verse 5 says, I, Yahweh, your Elohim, I'm a jealous Elohim, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's not all bad news, though. I know you're all depressed. Despite all the bad kings of Israel, there are a few good kings. Kings that rejected the sins of their fathers. Kings that boldly stood for righteousness. Kings that you and I can learn from. King Hezekiah is one of those kings. He would be considered a powerhouse of a king, in my opinion. We also see remnants of his reign to this day in archaeology. He built Hezekiah's tunnel in Jerusalem, which is a miracle and a feat of engineering that's almost unrivaled, in my opinion, in the ancient world. They started on two ends. They didn't have, they didn't have laser technology. They didn't have GPS. And they snaked around and somehow met in the middle. And it drains down. It drains the Gihon Spring. It's actually pretty amazing. It's really cold, though. I walked through it a third of a mile. I could barely feel my feet when I got to the end. The springs are cold. Second Kings 18 gives Hezekiah's account that says, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, we're talking about the northern king, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abiyah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. That's interesting. Remember when the, when the Israelites were getting killed by snakes and they erected this snake image that they were to look at and it would keep them alive if they were bitten? Well, this was a really important artifact, right? I mean, this is an ancient artifact. Well, they were essentially worshiping it. So Hezekiah said, we're going to grind this thing to powder. He got rid of it. I mean, that's amazing. Hezekiah trusted in Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to Yahweh and did not stop following him. He kept the commandments Yahweh had given Moses, and Yahweh was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. 
At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, the northern tribes, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Halah, in Gozan on the Habor River, and in towns of the Medes. This happened because they had not obeyed Yahweh their Elohim, but had violated his covenant. All that Moses, the servant of Yahweh, commanded, they neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. Do you see a theme here? Yahweh blesses those who keep his commandments, that keep his Torah, and he curses those that do not. The ten northern tribes and their kings rejected Yahweh, and no king had the fortitude to turn to Yahweh from the north. And as a result, they went into captivity. Now the southern tribes here, the few good kings, prolonged the inevitable, as you'll see here as we move on. To this day, archaeology can date finds in Israel to King Hezekiah. When a high place um, was destroyed and they discover it, they can usually date it to the time of Hezekiah. This is a testament to this great king of Israel and a testament to the truth and the, um, to the truth of Scripture. If you have an RSB 4th edition, you can turn to page 665. I took this picture. I've got it here on the, on the screen. When I was in Israel, at the Israel Museum several years ago, this, it's known as the Judahite Sanctuary, and it was found destroyed dating from the time of Hezekiah. This was built in opposition to the temple in Jerusalem. had its own holy of holies in it, altar, all that. I'd like you to watch this short video about a find in Israel that also deals with Hezekiah. Not sure if I can. Israeli archaeologists believe they've uncovered new evidence about King Hezekiah, and they say it supports the biblical account he destroyed the high places and idols in the land of Israel. John Waki shows us what they found. This latest discovery by Israeli archaeologists goes back to the first temple period, about 800 BC. They say it appears to parallel the Bible from the time of King Hezekiah. Hezekiah reigned 29 years here in Jerusalem, and Scripture says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, so that there was no king like him after him in Judah. But Hezekiah had trouble in his kingdom. This gate shrine was uncovered during recent excavations in the Tel Lahish National Park of central Israel. The city gate in the biblical period, it's something that plays that everything is going on inside. Archaeologist Sa'ar Ganor said ancient Lahish was an important city, second only to Jerusalem. Closing to the wall, we have a lot of uh, uh, benches with a pilaster, with, uh, with a, a white pilaster, with air armrest that people can sit. Elders, judges, and kings would have sat here in the administrative headquarters. Scoops, jars, and handles also point to the royal and administrative nature of the gate. We found a lot of jars uh, that call Lamelech jars. It means belong to the king. Other discoveries indicate the presence of cults and that Hezekiah dealt harshly with them. That evidence included two horned altars with the horns cut off. 2 Kings 18.4 reads, King Hezekiah removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, 
and cut down the Asherah poles. Archaeologists also talked of a significant and somewhat humorous sign of the times. A special find that we have in this uh, place, we have the toilet. It's a cube with a hole in, uh, in the middle. Also in 2 Kings, Scripture says Jehu broke down the sacred pillar and altar of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. And now it's the first time that we have a, uh, that we can identify the story from the Bible in uh, Tel Achish with the toilets. These pieces offer proof of the Bible's telling of what Hezekiah did. With the removing the horns, uh, canceling the uh, the holy of the holies of the gate shrine that we found, and the toilet make it impure. In part of the excavation. They dug through more than a foot of destruction and found arrowheads and slingshots that, according to Ganor, confirms the conquest of Assyrian king Sennacherib. It's like to uh, take the Bible uh, in your hand. Ganor added the Bible can stand on its own. We don't need to prove the Bible. We have the Bible and we have archaeologists. If it's matching, it's matching. Here in our story, it's matching. John Wagi, CBN News, Jerusalem. Praise Yahweh, we can even see Hezekiah's great rain even today, dug up from the ground. But despite all the good that Hezekiah did, he did have a fatal flaw, like most of us do, and that was vanity. If you remember the story, Hezekiah showed off his riches and bragged about his kingdom. I think it was to the Babylonians, maybe the Assyrians. He was condemned for it by the prophet Isaiah. But other than that... um, Hezekiah did what was right in Yahweh's eyes. And think about all this paganism and opposition he had to just go in there and just destroy it all. Unfortunately, though, Hezekiah had a son named Manasseh who reversed about everything. If you could rate the kings at the best to worst, Manasseh would probably take the prize for the worst king of Israel, in my view. Jewish tradition said that Manasseh killed the prophet Isaiah by sawing him in half. Scripture is absent regarding Isaiah's death, but Hebrews 11.37 does state that some were sawed in half, and it's supposed that maybe that's what, he, what, what it was talking about. But as bad as Manasseh was, Yahweh humbled him. His story is one of utter wickedness, but also redemption. His story shows the grace and compassion that Yahweh has for even the most wicked and that Yahweh can redeem anyone. The book of 2 Chronicles 33 tells the crazy story of Manasseh. It says Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of Yahweh following the detestable practices of the nations Yahweh had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of Yahweh in which Yahweh had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of Yahweh, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens and consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the eyes of Yahweh, arousing his anger. He took the image he had made and put it in Elohim's temple. Second Kings talks about this. 
It was the image of Asherah, the sex goddess. Puts that in that piece of trash in, in Yahweh's temple. Of which Elohim had said to David and to his son Solomon in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to them, assigned to your ancestors, if only they would be careful to do everything I command them concerning all the laws, decrees, and regulations given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray so that they did more evil than the nations Yahweh had destroyed before the Israelites. Yahweh spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. Think about that. So Yahweh brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of Yahweh, his Elohim, and humbled himself greatly before the Elohim of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, Yahweh was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that Yahweh is Elohim. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David west of the Gihon Spring in the valley as far as the entrance of the fish gate and encircling the hill of the Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all the fortified cities of Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of Yahweh, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of Yahweh and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to Yahweh their Elohim. So they're, they're mixing worship here. Although Manasseh is considered by many scholars to be the most wicked king, in the end Manasseh turned to Yahweh. He obviously didn't go far enough. He could have made mandates even farther like his, like his father before him. But at the end, it's a good story at least. He turns to Yahweh. And when I hear um, people today, like, you know, there's no grace in the Old Testament. <laughs> this is a, a depiction of, of grace in its purest form. I mean, my goodness. Could Manasseh do anything more to Yahweh? Manasseh's grandson might be the best king of Judah. Even better than King David. That's just my own idea. Especially when you look at merit. When you look at his whole life. He's the, the only king I can see that's better than him was Messiah himself. This is just my opinion. Second Chronicles 34.1 speaks of him, and it's an amazing story of faithfulness, revival. Every king of Israel was supposed to copy the book of the law. That was something they were supposed to do. But apparently this did not happen. The law of Yahweh was forgotten in Israel. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left, Scripture says. In the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the Elohim of his father David. In his twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of high places, Asherah poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the Baals were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them and smashed the Asherah poles and idols. Those he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. 
He burned the bones of the priests on the altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem. He repaired Yahweh's temple, it says. Verse 11, they also gave money to the carpenters and the builders to purchase dressed stone and timber for joists and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had allowed to fall into ruin. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of Yahweh, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of Yahweh that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of Yahweh. He gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read it from it in the presence of the king. When Josiah heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders. You've got to think this happened even after he, he made these reforms. Go and inquire of Yahweh for me and for the remnant of Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is Yahweh's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of Yahweh. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Continue in verse 29. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of Yahweh with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in the hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of Yahweh. The king stood by his pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of Yahweh to follow Yahweh and keep his commands, statutes, decrees with all his heart and all his soul and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of Elohim, the Elohim of their ancestors. Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites, and he had all who were present in Israel serve Yahweh their Elohim as long as he lived. They did not fail to follow Yahweh, the Elohim of their ancestors. Josiah is an example of how a leader can turn a people and a nation back to Yahweh. Sadly, after Josiah died, Israel descended back into idolatry. And this has been the story of Israel and the people. Yahweh never desired a human king in Israel. (coughs) Excuse me. Yahshua was and has always been the king. The very name Israel means Yahweh struggles in Hebrew or Yahweh wrestles with Elohim. Jacob wrestling with Yahweh in Genesis was a precursor to his descendants doing the same. After Josiah died at the young age of 39, his son Jehoahaz was made king in his stead. This only lasted three months. And Jehoahaz did, which was evil in the sight of Yahweh, according to 2 Kings 20, verse 30. But Jehoahaz was taken away by Pharaoh Necho to Egypt where he died. And Pharaoh Necho made Elohim, the son of Josiah, king in the room of Josiah, his father. And turned his name to Jehoiakim. 2 Kings 23, 34. But Jehoiakim also did evil in Yahweh's sight. It amazes me how Josiah's sons could not follow in their father's righteous example. 
You would think they'd learn from it. But I have personally witnessed in my life the children of men of faith reject the truth. So this is nothing new. It has been said it doesn't matter how we start the race. It matters how we finish the race. The Apostle Paul said he fought a good fight and he finished the race. Sadly, many start but never finished. It doesn't even matter necessarily how fast you start as long as you finish. Out of all these kings of Israel and Judah, only eight can be considered good. Out of 39, that's about 20%. So for every 10 kings, only two were true to Yahweh. And even only a couple of those were on another level. A level that stamped out idolatry from the land that the people followed. I made a video that illustrates the good and bad kings throughout Israel's mortal kingship. It's a sad testament to sin and disobedience. But here and there you see glimpses of hope. Of course, with the kings of Judah. Not so much in the northern tribes. The United Kingdom of Israel. King Saul. King David. King Solomon. The kings of Judah. King Rehoboam. King Abiah. King Asa. King Jehoshaphat. King Jehoram. King Ahaziah. King Athaliah. King Joash. King Abaziah. King Uzziah. King Jotham. King Ahaz. King Hezekiah. King Manasseh. King Ammon. King Josiah. King Jehoaz. King Jehoiakim. King Jehoiachin. King Zedekiah. The kings of Israel. King Jeroboam. King Nadab. King Basha, King Elah, King Zimri, King Omri, King Ahab, 
King Ahaziah, King Joram, King Jehu, King Jehoaz, King Jehoash, King Jeroboam II, King Zechariah, King Shalom, King Menahem, King Pekiah, King Pekah, King Hoshea, lesson here is man will always fail. Yahweh is eternal. We cannot rely on man but Yahweh. We don't know any better than him. Exodus 14 encompasses everything we need to know. As Pharaoh was approaching the Israelites, the people, Moses says, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance Yahweh will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today You will never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You need only to be still. I find it ironic that the last king of Israel, before they were destroyed and hauled off to Assyria, was Hoshea. Hoshea means salvation in Hebrew. Hoshea and Yahshua have the same Hebrew root, which is Yasha. It means to deliver. Hoshea delivered the Israelites into captivity. But Yahshua will deliver his people from sin. Man always gravitates to evil and disobedience, but there will always be a few who will follow Yahweh no matter what. It says the rocks will cry out. We need to only be like the good kings who obeyed Yahweh's voice. Be like Hezekiah, who broke down the high places. Or like Josiah, who changed when the law was found. He went back to the ancient truth, the truth of his forefathers. It's really not that complicated. Yahweh, follow Yahweh and we'll be blessed. Disobey him and we'll receive the consequences and the curses. Let us learn from the kings of Israel. With so much death, pain, and destruction, it is no wonder we are commanded to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the so-called city of peace. And it was written... In the Psalms, Alu Shalom Yerushalayim. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Praise Yahweh.